Hey Geekscapists, I'm here with a good friend of mine, Blake Harris. He has written the book Console Wars. It's currently available on Amazon and in bookstores, if you can find bookstores that still exist. There it's are a few. tough time to write a book. It's a tough time to write a book and go to a bookstore, but I think right. it's a great time to write a book. It is, a, um, you know, it, it, in here, in, in, so Blake <laughs> and I have become friends over the last couple of weeks because I, I read the book. It was sent to me by the publisher, and it, it's awesome. Thank you. The book chronicles the early 90s battle between Sega and Nintendo, where going into the 90s, Nintendo owned 90, 95% of the video game console market in the United States, and then all of a sudden this little upstart Sega comes out of nowhere, and from the period of time from like 91 to 93, 94, starts to chip away at their control and uh we all have those memories of sonic the hedgehog and mario and, and the commercials the commercial sega and all that stuff so like where did that stuff come from it is all in the book and of course some of my favorite parts of the book aren't about sega at all they're the parts about nintendo and the super mario brothers movie and how that <laughs> turned into it you know what it turned into and things like the birth of the um sony playstation which yeah. could have very easily be, been the sega playstation as the book t talks about which it, i mean the whole book just all these cultural touchstones from yeah. our childhood that you know i took for granted at the time because i was 10 and i <laughs> yeah, wouldn't right, ask questions right. the mario movie was just bad I, some movies were bad some yeah. were good um why was the super nintendo more expensive why did parents get angry that they didn't play the old games these things just were back then but now you know the book has given me the opportunity to explore the whys and yeah. it's so much cooler than i ever would have expected um i think i had mentioned to you already that my biggest fear going into the project was that um i romanticized working at sega and nintendo these video game companies i imagined it kind of like working at willy wonka's chocolate factory like every day was just like let's make this candy let's play mm -hmm. here but I was worried that people would say, like, no, it's just kind of like you punch Just a, a job. Yeah, just a job. But not a single person told me that. Everybody, almost everybody thought it was the greatest time of their lives. And I also love that um, almost all the people from Nintendo still hate all the people from Sega and vice versa. So, really? Yeah. Because, I mean, it got really personal there. With, like, it did. The, 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 the Genesis does what Nintendo don't adds. And, like, the attack. I mean, Genesis really went at Nintendo. And, and Nintendo, according to the book, ignored them for a long time, almost to their detriment. Like, they were yeah. like, no, we're above fighting with Sega. We're above fighting with Sega. We have a bigger market share than Sega. We're in control. And then they looked up one day, within almost a year, that really pivotal year after Sonic came out, and they were like, oh, crap. Yeah, they really missed the window to sort of smash Sega and make them go away. And during that time period, Sega painted Nintendo into a corner of being, like, the uncool system, the, the minor leagues of video games. Even though it was a, the Super Nintendo was a superior system. Yes. Like, technically... It it seemed to lack the personality of like being the cool system. What but like attitude? you know, the one thing I always remember, the first thing I remember when it comes to marketing is perception is reality, and right. Sega just changed what the perception of video games were. And yeah, I mean, all the Nintendo games are great. Super Nintendo games are great. Yeah. But they made them uncool, yeah, and I still Final to Fantasy this day III, Final, think all like those are amazing. I still feel like oh, I'm kind of a dork to be playing Super Nintendo, even though I love it. Well, just uh, yeah, I think Wii U and Wii still has that. Kind of like, and, and the Wii didn't help, and it went after a, a new yeah. kind of casual gamer or yeah. a nascent gamer that was like your parents or yep. your younger kids. Like that, that didn't help. But at the end of the day, like the the Wii's install base was huge compared to the Xbox and the, the 360. And, the and that's PS3. kind of what the you know the book is ultimately about. Nintendo definitely took Sega for granted, and then they lost this position, and then they were painted into a corner, and then did kind of try to fight back and say, "No, we're pretty cool." But like when the uncool kid tells you he's cool, that just makes him less cool. And then the, um, do you think the the Sony PlayStation came out in '96 and then actually was the cool system? I and, think and it, Nintendo didn't actually catch up to it. It was never cool again after the PlayStation came out. I think, I think out. Nintendo 
um, like a lot of us that maybe grew up loving comics and yeah. the nerdy pursuits, there was a point, you know, we wanted to be the Jack and the cool kid. And right. then as we got older, we were like, this is who we are. Let's just own it. And that's kind of what Nintendo's done. And at least from a software perspective, I think that's been great for them. Um, they've had troubles with the Wii U hardware, but um, I do think that with the Wii, it was them embracing like, all right, we cannot compete against Microsoft and Sony when it comes to graphics. And, and they can comes... eat each other alive. Yeah. Right. And it was like, you know, game theory, like we'll sit back and let you guys collide and then hopefully we'll be able to uh, benefit from all the money that you're throwing at each other. And they have the mobile market wrapped up as far as mobile gaming. I mean, obviously everybody's on their phones now. Yeah, no, but that's and, a and great every, point. Everybody has to, you know, but the 3DS and the DS, like the DS, the 3DS came out and it was slow. And then the Ambassador program happened, and then you have Animal Crossing and a couple of other games, and the 3DS picked up. And I feel like the Wii U is just like a Pokemon title and an Animal Crossing title, and maybe Super Smash Brothers that we played at E3 this week. Maybe that's the title that helps, you know, start the the rock slide towards the Wii U doing what the 3DS did. Um, the Dreamcast. Speaking of Sega's last system, yeah. the Dreamcast started out in reverse. It had a huge opening. It seemed like everybody had a, a Dreamcast, and all of a sudden, things like the CD technology being easily pirated, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what caused the downfall of the Dreamcast, which um, isn't in the book? Yeah, so the book really just chronicles from 1985 up to 1996, so from the NES up to the Saturn N64 and PlayStation. But, um, you know, even though it doesn't go into the failure of the Dreamcast, I think a lot of the seeds are planted during this time period, and it's not surprising why it fell apart, even though. It was very successful. I remember loving it. I remember desperately wanting it. And then by the time I was actually going to get it, it had like dropped in price and I was really happy. And then it dropped to like, sorry, we're not going to support this anymore. Right. And I think that was a lot of cultural conflict between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. The system was not as successful over there. Um, and it was also selling for, they, they aggressively um, priced it here to the point where they were like losing money on each console, which you always do. But it was Only for the next year, first year right. or so, yeah. I mean, just, you know, in the Razor and Razorblade scheme of things, you, you do that to sell the software. But they weren't selling enough software, and they weren't getting the support from Sega of Japan that they wanted. And, um, I mean, it just feels like a fitting ending to this back and forth, this cultural friction. But a sad one, too, because that was a great console. Between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. Yeah. yeah. Which turned out to be the much more interesting battle in the book than Sega Nintendo. Yeah, this, that is true. I, I do love the stuff about Sega and Nintendo, but because Nintendo's kind of trying to play their own game for so long, it does feel like Sega, even though it's really charismatic, the guys that you chronicled, and I mean, you did over 200 hours of interviews with these people. Or no, you interviewed over 200 people. Yeah, I interviewed over 200 people, and so many of them, like hours. the main cast was like, I don't know, 20 interviews with each of it, like Tom right. Polinsky and Shinobu and those guys. And so, like, I like their stories of going at Nintendo, but you're right. Where where the, the, the things start getting really dramatic is reading about, and it's almost sad and tragic, very, yeah, how, how Sega of America is having so much success with the Sega Genesis. That's not being re replicated in, in, in Japan. No, in over Japan, here, you mentioned that they away. have... That, yeah, when Tom Klinsky took over in 1990, the Genesis and Sega had 5% of the market, and within three years, they went to 55%. And in Japan, they had 5% of the market and went to, like, 15% of the market. Sometimes 25% during a good month. But they never even it never even was a fair fight. But why would Japan not accept the fact that what America was doing was right, or successful, yeah, it was successful. and adapt those, those practices, those aggressive practices, for Japan? I mean, part of it... There's a cultural difference. Yeah, I mean, what we think about when we think about Sega is 
uh, Sega or Genesis does, but Nintendo. Welcome to the next level. The Sega Scream. Yeah, it's kind of um, MTV-ish. Yeah, the MTV-ish, the aggressive, in-your-face advertising, the marketing, the perception is reality. And that wasn't the case in Japan. Um, they didn't want to take that risk. They, you know, it was frowned upon to market in that manner. Um, they it was disrespectful, to, or what? It was disrespectful. Yeah. It, where it's kind of disrespectful here, but it's also disrespectful to uh, slowly walk around the bases when you hit a home run. But it's still pretty fucking cool when they do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so that was part of it. Uh, another part that you know is not really their fault is that Nintendo had a stranglehold in Japan just as they did in America. Mm-hmm. But the the federal laws are, you know, they kind of do favor this, the sustainability of the monopoly in Japan much more mm-hmm. than they do in America. You know, while part of the reason that Nintendo didn't fight back with Sega, um, in addition to them feeling like they were above it, was because they were fighting the federal government for antitrust allegations for having a monopoly, and they were fighting a lot of other foes during that time. Oh, Nintendo was, because they, they, they were so aggressive with their distributors, and they were so aggressive yeah. with, you know, because you couldn't, because the, their own developers, you couldn't publish more than five Nintendo games a year. Yep, they had a... They had because a, they didn't want to uh, blow the market out. They didn't want to dilute the market the way Atari had. Exactly. Yeah, so, you know, probably the, the project took me three years to research and write the first two years was just almost exclusively research and, and i will admit that a combination of having such difficulty at first speaking with nintendo employees and hearing it mostly from the sega perspective as well as just um nintendo's reputation i thought that nintendo was the quote-unquote villain in the story they were the goliath um but i did begin to see where they were coming from at least philosophically so when they only let five developers create five games per year you can say you know that's draconian they have these very stringent rules that nobody would break. And they would, would under... Uh, yeah, and they would... So if a... So the situation... Like Toys R Us, they would under uh, Yeah, deliver. they would under deliver on orders. So if uh, Toys R Us wanted 2 million copies of Contra, they would... Make, well, I guess that was a Konami. Yeah. I mean, they, if they wanted 2 million copies of uh, Balloon Fighter, Nintendo would maybe give them 200,000. They would never filled orders. They always under allocated, which... Right. Um, kept demand high. Which kept demand high. So they purposely would sell out. Um, to create a frenzy. And, you know, their philosophical reasoning was they, they viewed themselves as resurrecting the video game market in America, which they did after the crash of Atari, and they viewed the main problem is a glut of bad products and bad games, and they didn't want that to happen again. Because Atari didn't have a license. Like, Atari, you could, anybody could develop a game for exactly. Atari. And it was, I mean, Nintendo's philosophy was almost that, like, we need to protect people from themselves. Like so Tengen. Remember the Tengen yes. thing? Like, Tengen made a, 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 they made Tetris, they made a gauntlet. They made a couple, uh, they made a baseball game. RBI like, baseball. RBI baseball. Yeah. Like Tengen, I always wondered as a kid why Tengen's cartridges looked different than the great Nintendo <laughs> cartridges. Like they were these black, it, angular the cartridges. Yeah. And I was like, why does the Tengen cartridge look different? Oh, it's because Tengen was making these games without the Nintendo license. Yeah, and that and was one of my um, favorite parts of the book is that Tengen, um, you know, they, they chose not to have a license with Nintendo because they felt like, the the terms were unfair that Nintendo had too much power and they thought we have great games um we are going to sell them on our own and as a kid with that logic I was like sure that makes sense you have great games you sell them but where are you going to sell them okay retailers the retailers um were making amazingly 20 to 25 percent of their profits were coming from this one Nintendo product and its games. The world of Nintendo. Yeah, that the world of Nintendo like, section. In like Toys R Us, the world of Nintendo. KB stores, they had the exactly. world of Nintendo. And so they did not want to anger Nintendo. They couldn't manage to lose that profit center. We just talked about how Nintendo so they would stopped under-allocate orders. Well, 
yes, they did. And there were, it wasn't going to help your case if you were selling um, games that Nintendo didn't want you to be selling. So like, so like Nintendo already is under-delivering their orders, right. under-filling their orders. They're already being stringent. And then all of a sudden they go into your Toys R Us and they see a Tengen game. They're yeah. going to be pissed and they'll do it even worse. And, I mean, and, and all there of this were a lot was more private retailers there back was, there because uh, because the, in the book, they're like Nintendo when they first started out as an arcade cabinet company, and then they transitioned into a home video. Like it wasn't automatic that the NES was going to go into stores. Absolutely, and there's not. a part in your book where they actually have to go almost door to door to not Toys R Us or Kmart or Walmart. They have to go door to door to like the guy with the electronic store in like Times Square. Like back when there were a lot more boutique. Yep. you know, mom and pop electronic stores, they had to go almost door to door and get the NES put in there I mean, because everybody it, still had bad taste in their yeah. mouth from Atari. And, and, that, and that, you know, that is a big part of the Nintendo narrative, uh, you know, resurrecting the industry. And it's certainly not overstated. Speaking with retailers and speaking with people on their sales force, people lost hundreds of millions of dollars in 1983 with the failure of the video games. And the with people, Atari? Yeah, yeah, with the failure of, with Atari and, you know, the glut of bad games. And it wasn't even just Atari. It was also... There was the Intellivision and ColecoVision, and they also had games. The and Odyssey? None of them were compatible. The Odyssey. I had an Odyssey. <laughs> and it was like a Pac-Man clone where you were basically a, a, a mouse in, the, in a maze, and there were cats instead of ghosts. And then when you ever ate the pellet, you became a dog. You went from a mouse to a dog, and then you could chase the cats. Basically like an early version of Kid Chameleon. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. I, I was just playing Kid, Kid I was playing Kid Chameleon <laughs> earlier. We were recording at Twin Galaxies and they have an infinite game machine and I was playing Kid Chameleon. And it was it did not hold up. Um so uh But but yeah, so yeah. retail they would go in like they would want to go into KB and Toys R Us, but when they did, the the people who they would be pitching to literally had their jobs because the person before them was fired because they had invested in video games. Right. And they had failed. And you know, in hindsight, we see video games as this huge, amazing business and bringing yeah. so much fun to our lives. Oh, it's bigger than Hollywood, $600 yeah. billion dollar industry. So, like, it seems like, of course. But it wasn't an of course because there was also personal computer was coming around that time. Mm -hmm. There was, I could definitely imagine an alternate timeline where personal computers really took off in the mid-80s and video games never came back because right. you could play games on your computer. Right. Um, and it is kind of, to an extent, what happened in Europe yes. where Nintendo didn't get there until the l very late 80s, early 90s, and by that point, the personal computer revolution had happened. And that's, you know, speaking to people in Europe, it wasn't Sega or Nintendo, it was console or PC. Right. And, and that, PC1. Yeah, and PC1. And that's a big part of the reason why the PlayStation was so successful over there, because it was the most PC-like, the most PC-friendly. Mm. Um, and so there's all these things going on that I had no idea about at the time. Um, it's kind of cool. It's very cool. It's, I mean, that's really awesome. And so uh, one of our listeners is just adamant that there was a console wars before the console wars there was an you know the one we talked about with activision or in television and, and yeah. atari and you know well, ColecoVision. I mean, was that an actual console war uh i mean there's i'm sure you don't, you, was, you don't have to be nice to this guy no i'm sure there was I love wars before <laughs> coke and pepsi um, i love you miles anytime there's a lot of money at stake and there certainly was with video games prior to the video game crash you know people are going to compete right um but i think that why I would not that deem that a console war. I mean, who am I? I'm right. not the police. No, no, you wrote the book. You called it the right. console wars. This well, is the console wars. You wrote it the console wars. <laughs> no, the only wars. reason I would say it wasn't was because what we were talking about earlier this evening about today with Sony and Microsoft, like console wars was, didn't just refer to the concept of two companies competing against each other. Because Microsoft and Sony are doing it now, right? Yeah, because they're doing it now. But it was just the notion that this thing was bigger than these two companies. And the subtitle of the book is The Battle That Defined a Generation. And I, and I don't really mean that tug-in-cheek. I really felt like... 
Sega and Nintendo defined who you were and who you wanted to be. And ColecoVision and Atari didn't define this kid? Because Miles is very, he's uppity about whether or not the, the importance, I mean, they were important in his life. Do not Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to like disparage him or demean him because it, it was a big deal and it was certainly <laughs> big business. Like, right. and, and they had great games for the time. So, But they know. failed because they were just, there, there weren't But very, even before that, like, I mean, you could say that there was a console war between the Magnavox Odyssey, which came out in 1971 or 72, and, right. and the Atari 2600, or the Atari even just the Pong home systems. Like, right. they competed against each other, and Atari kicked their butt. But they didn't define a generation the way that Sega Nintendo did. Are you only saying that because you weren't a part of that generation? I'm sure that has something to do with it. Right. But, I, you know, in addition to this project, I've also been spending a lot of time with Ralph Baer, who invented video games. Okay. Um, and that's actually why in the book I write the word out, video games is one word, which sometimes, or right. most of the time people do is two words, but yeah, he it, yeah, invented your phone, it. It's, yeah, in your phone it's not proper to put video yeah. games as one word. I, I can't believe my editor like let me yeah. do that. Cause so it, video games is one word. Because video games is one word because he told me. Um, when I've been meeting with him up in New Hampshire, he says to me, "It's one like it should, I invented it. it. Should be one word. It should be like videotape. Why would it be two words?" Mm. And so I thought, "Listen, this guy is the authority." Um, and him telling me about the early console wars between Atari and Magnavox, uh, they got their clocks clean, and it was it didn't define the generation because it was so one-sided and lopsided. And even what was it was all Atari. Uh, Atari it was all Atari. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and a lot of it like is the marketing that we don't even realize that we don't even think about. Like people thought that Magnavox Odyssey only worked on Magnavox televisions because wow. of all the commercials it had a Magnavox television. And also just because Magnavox was a television company whereas Atari wasn't. So what you What a thought, stupid decision. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's all about getting the message out there. And you know, I think also um, I'm sure that Coleco and the Intellivision and Atari did have a lot of scrapping and a lot of battles, but in terms of the defining a generation as well, I mean, that, that battle was not very long-lasting, and it didn't... Um, yeah, you only mainly think of Atari. Yeah, and, and, and like, part of and the Atari reason... Atari didn't have, like, a Sonic the Hedgehog character come out of it. Right, they didn't you know have those I mean? mascot characters, they don't have any um, mascots, IPs that we talk about today. Um, Gallagher. But that was an arcade game. First. Yeah, it was an arcade game. Yeah, everything you a think about of, like, is Pac-Man, actually an arcade I mean, game. Yeah, and right. even uh, Donkey Kong, the arcade game right. that Nintendo made was on some of the systems. Uh, and then the other thing was, like, just think about how we've evol evolved technologically in terms of what we were just talking about right before we started, about mm -hmm. how we, there was no Twitter and Facebook 10 years ago and getting the word out there was yes. so different. In the early 90s, there was now cable channels. There was now MTV. There right. was now home videos, like... That made a big difference between the 10 years where Atari and Coleco were mm -hmm. going head-to-head. -head. So, um, as much as the book is about Nintendo and uh, Sega, one of the parts that I thought was really fascinating, well, it, it's kind of in the latter half of the book, is the whole evolution of the, of the Sony PlayStation, how it was very feasible that we almost got a Sega PlayStation. Like, the Sega PlayStation almost happened. Yeah. That was, I mean... It was it, a near partnership. I mean, Sony was up for it. Sega of America was up for it. They wanted to make the Sega PlayStation, especially almost to give a kick in the pants. I mean, Sega kind of started going to all of the people who had been spurned by Nintendo or ticked off by Nintendo, yeah. developers, <laughs> etc. And were like, hey, come develop for the Genesis. And one of those people who, uh, one of those companies that got really embarrassed by Nintendo was Sony because yeah. they were supposed to make a CD drive together. Sony was like a scorned lover that had been um, embarrassed by Nintendo publicly at the June 1991 yeah. summer CES um, where they were supposed to announce a partnership with Nintendo and they announced it 
um, in the last day in May, and then the next day it was Nintendo's turn, and that was the one people cared about because Nintendo was the big man on campus, and they said all the right lines, except when they should have said Sony, they said Philips, and they uh, definitely could have dealt with that more delicately in a way that wouldn't have hurt and Sony. And then Sony found out with that announcement. Yeah, um, and so they, you know, at the time, Sega, as you just said, was collecting those that were angry at Nintendo. And, and when we talked about earlier, the under-allocations and the under-supplying, and Tangan, you know, there was plenty of people who were angry at Nintendo. Um, and what Sega needed to do was to just provide enough credibility to say, if you're going to take that leap and, like, leave Nintendo and leave the, potentially those 20 to 25% of your profits on the table, like, they needed to be a viable alternative. And that's what Tom did, and that's what Sonic gave them, that other mascot. Um, but, yeah, as Sega became more and more viable... Sony um, kept exploring the video game business, and internally there, there was concerns about whether they should get into hardware business. Um, they had been making games, but they were. But I love the, your story about the uh, VHS, because yeah. in the book you find out how VHS and uh, and Betamax. And Betamax. So Sony, Sony had the Betamax. And Sony had a Betamax, and because Betamax was a higher quality but a shorter record time than VHS, they were like, okay, well we're going to back the technology, but. The consumers all went to VHS almost immediately, and Tony lost their shirts. Yeah. So, of course, they would be a bit cautious about going into the video game market, especially after they lived through 1983 and the crash of it yeah. once before. So, from Sony's point of view, video games weren't a foregone conclusion. They saw 1983, they saw the VHS Betamax, and they're kind of thinking after that, like, we maybe rather not be the guys making the v VCRs yeah. or the Betamax players, but we just want to be the guys who make the movies. And kind of along that plan... In the late 80s, they bought CBS Records and Columbia right. Pictures, and so they got even more into the content of it. And so the Sega CD, half of the, of the, the games that came out on the Sega CD were Sony games. Yeah, Sega, um, you know... That was they, the beginning of their partnership. That was, yeah, that was definitely the beginning of their partnership, and it was almost, um, you know, an implicit bargain of, if you guys provide us with the content to help us launch the system, we'll teach you guys how to make games. Because, you know, you think of Nintendo and Sega... Um, coming into the hardware business, they both at least had a lineage in arcade games. Right. Um, and they had those games in their archive and inventory, yeah, as yeah. well as the means to make games, whereas Sony didn't. Like, they knew how to make great televisions, they knew how to make great consumer electronics, and even if they knew how to make a prototype of a PlayStation in 1991, they didn't know how to make that. the games. They didn't know how to make the games, so Sega provided that for them. With the Sega CD. With the Sega CD, they worked with their developers and showed them how to or, you know, taught right. them how to make better games. Um, and, and that was, like, you know, them starting to date together, and then they wanted to get married and Make the Sega PlayStation. Make the Sega PlayStation. That was the next logical step. Yeah. And it was... Well, what happened? Um, well, you guys got to read the books, because we're just kind of really paraphrasing. Yeah. But, but I mean, that, I mean, we talk about that cultural difference yeah. between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. It's, it's, and Sega of Japan wanted that 32X piece of... Like, <laughs> and the great thing about the book is that um, was it the 32X? Was that what Sega wanted instead of no, the Sega? No, I mean, it was the Sega Saturn, but, the, Sega but, Saturn. They, but they also yeah. thrust the 32X upon America. Um, and it was something you see in the They wanted lot of, the Saturn instead of the PlayStation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, they liked the... Uh, they said that they, could, they didn't like Sony's architecture. Um, and that's the reason that there's no yeah. Sega PlayStation sitting in front of us right now. I mean, it's the one. Yeah, it's the it's main one of reason. them, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot they of reasons. They wanted the Saturn. Um, they want, and it's like that thing that you see in a lot of places beyond video games, the not invented here syndrome. Right. Um, so, but Sega Sony was Sony didn't even want the PlayStation. They, Ken Kitagari had to make that yeah. thing secret. Isn't that amazing? Like Ken the most successful console make, of all time had to make it in secret. He had to make the PS One in secret. 
Like, he, yeah, like so off the records, like some kind of like government, like he, like it's like yeah. this is off the record. You and a crack team of specialists will make exactly. this video <laughs> really game. That's really what it was. And they made a fake division within with what, the music group. within the music group. So he's moved off the premises of the technological. Yeah. So so Ken Kodagari is in the music group making the PlayStation in secret. That's and, insane. And meanwhile, an Icelandic novelist who's a former physicist and now s running their software publishing division, so making their games in America, is, trying like, to get is the, the other half of that, yeah, is the other half of that equation, bringing in developers and making the PlayStation a real thing. But and they didn't, but they no longer had Sega because Sega of Japan was dumb. Yeah. And so they went out and got uh, Psychicness. Is that how you pronounce it? Psychicness? I don't I, You know psychosis. what I'm talking about. The, yeah. the people who made Lemmings in yeah, Shadow in the of the Beast. Yeah, Liverpool developer. Sh yeah, Shadow of the Beast was the correct. Like, that was awesome. Yeah. You know I, why? Because I had the Mega. <laughs> Both the Lemmings and that Shadow of the Beast European was on Amiga. Yeah, they went, um, you know, further to that point of the differences between the Saturn and the PlayStation and why one failed and why they it shouldn't have been that way. It could have been very differently. You know, I, I'm not a technical guy. I have no idea which system is better than the others. I see the specs, but like, there's some people out there who say the Saturn is a better hardware system than the PlayStation. I mean, they could be right. But the point was, um, Olaf Olafsson, the Icelandic yeah, physicist, novelist, physicist. Um, and, and just Sony in general, by the time they decided to launch it, they wanted to make it so easy for developers to make games for the PlayStation and the Psygnosis or Psygnosis. Yeah, yeah, They yeah. made a development kit that made it so easy to make games, and the Saturn was just like a clusterfuck. Developers didn't want to develop it. They couldn't figure out how to develop it. So it could have been the best thing in the world, but if right. you can't get people to speak your language, who cares? And that's and what I, killed the Dreamcast as well, you believe? I think to some extent. Yeah. I think that I think that's also partly what killed or what cut into Nintendo's lead, um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, a lot of great games still do come from Japan, but back in the late 80s and early 90s, like 95 to 100% of the games came from Japan. Right. Um, and actually, Nintendo, one of the pivotal scenes in the book is um, the head of it, Hiroshi Yamuchi, um, laughing at somebody from America saying, you think that Europeans and Americans can develop games? No, right. only the Japanese can. Um, and so, you know, Nintendo really lost out on the opportunity to have these people develop games for them and that's what Sony really embraced and you know when someone makes games for you that also is not invented here but you make a really nice markup on it and also that's, you help sell the console so right. you would think that you would want to have as much great quality product as possible it's insane so what was your biggest discovery in the book like I mean that, that like Sony thing was um, probably my first really big discovery that just kind of made me like take a day to be like right. let me imagine a world where this would have happened um, let me take a day. Let me just sit down real quick. Let me just gather my legs. Yeah. Um, I guess the Mortal Kombat stuff was... Um, the blood code and all that yeah, stuff? Yeah, like that was a... Um, I don't know that there was any, oh my God, Eureka, my life's different now moment. But just um, that was the thing where like growing up, I, I remembered the, the, the actual happenings or right, results, right. but I had no idea. I felt going. cool that I had a Genesis because yeah. my Mortal Kombat had blood if I had the blood like, code. I d and I Super Nintendo had green sweat. Yeah, I had no idea at the time um, that it was like that there were Senate hearings about violence in video games. Right. Say in Nintendo, these two companies that were metaphorically fighting were like literally fighting in Washington. Yeah, it was Joe DC. Lieberman. Yeah, with and Tipper Gore. <laughs> she was wasn't, it, it, no, it was Joe Lieberman. It was, yeah, Joe, it was, it was Lieberman. definitely Joe Lieberman. Yeah, it was definitely. And it was Night Trap, that game that I traded my yeah. Amiga for. Yeah. 
Like, I had no idea that was going on. I had no you idea. Gotta be jamming me. Vampires. <laughs> I love that game. It's coming back, right? Well, uh, the, the Lion Forge, who I write Miami Vice for, they they have the Night Trap license. They're, and Cullen Bunn, who's a really good comic writer, is writing Night Trap for Lion Forge. That's so cool. And the books are, they have nothing to do with the storyline of the game. Nor should they, because the storyline is. How dare, how dare you, sir? <laughs> uh, but, they, uh, but they're actually pretty creepy books. They're actually pretty cool. But. Um, uh, when I started reading, I was like, wait, this doesn't have to do with the game at all. Like, you know, the thing of the game is like, they're always talking to camera and they're like, hey, recruit, we got a, yeah, we yeah. got a house full of vampires preying on girls. We need you to go and set off traps. And there are dudes within like, in this headquarters with like guns and all this crap. I'm like, Oh, because you guys don't seem equipped to do it at all. Yeah, that was let, when I was watching the, the whole thing. The I was like, why are you sending me There's in? all these hard asses who are like, you got to go in there and you got to set these traps because these vampires are bloodthirsty and these girls aren't going to survive without you. And they're all like, I'm sitting there, huh? I just picked up a control. What? Huh? Not so cool. And, you know, but I mentioned that as sort of like the biggest surprise for me because there was just um, so many layers to that story that, like, when you keep peeling them back, it's like, what? Wow. And, and like, the, the night trap. One, yeah. Yeah, with Night Trap, Mortal Kombat, the violence. Like, Night Trap itself, um, whether or not you think it was a very violent game or warranted <laughs> these subcommittee hearings that really ended up It was the 90s that the girls were in the nightgown. But, like, the thing was, yeah, it was the 90s, but the game that was in question, Night Trap, was made in, like, 1986 for yeah. the Hasbro system. And then Sony acquired the rights to it. And then as part of, like, Sega and Sony getting into bed together, Sega, like, agreed to take... Night Trap off their hands. Like right. It very well could have been like they took and a they wanted off Night Trap because it was the one with the attitude. Yeah, because it had Dana Plato in yeah. it. Yeah. And in Dana Plato. <laughs> oh, sad Dana Plato, rest in peace. Yeah. But uh, it was like that was the thing that was at the heart of this. It wasn't even like Sega was like, yes, we need vulgarity, we need nudity, we need Dana Plato, rest in peace. Um, th- like, it was like, we need this thing from eight years earlier that we just arbitrarily selected and right. now we're going to go down to Washington. And, uh, yeah, get get, get our, our feet raked, raked across the coals for it. Um, was there anybody you didn't get that you wanted for the book? Yeah, so um, at first, um, as somebody with no writing credits, it was hard to get anybody. Right. But uh, persistence paid off. And uh, How did you reach out to these people? Just find them on Facebook? Um, I'm messing with you. <laughs> no, well, the biggest resource for me early on, uh, luckily I spoke with Tom very early in the process. Kalinsky, right. Tom Kalinsky, and he, since he was the president there for this entire period, it was an easier sell when I talked to people and say, so hey, he opened I've up Sega to, to you. Like, Sega Not got yet. opened up to you for... No, he time. didn't. I mean, at first, he opened himself up to me. Right. But it wasn't until about six months later when I sent him my overview of the project and sort of how I saw the story and why I thought it was important to be told and why I thought it should be told in this narrative nonfiction style. That was when he... I remember getting the email. It was in December of uh, 2011, and, like, I was just... I almost called my parents at midnight because I... He's in... Right, California, and I was just like, he's like, wow, this is amazing. Like, and from that moment on, we would speak every week and try to meet as much as possible as well. And that's when he really opened the Rolodex to me. Uh, you know, it makes sense. He shouldn't just. So, so once you're doing uh, at that point, your book becomes very Sega heavy. How did you then turn around and be like, all right, Howard Lincoln, like people at Nintendo, like how come come yeah, talk on so, camera to me? Like, in a perfect world, my book would have probably been. Uh, one chapter Sega, one chapter Nintendo, vice versa, back and forth with some Sony thrown in there. And, you know, in the Nintendo chapters, you learn about Sega and same thing with um, the other way around. But um, getting people from Nintendo of America to speak with me at first was impossible. Um, Peter Main and Gail Tillen, to their credit, both like took a chance and spent like an hour with me. But it wasn't the kind of thing like with Tom and Al Nilsson and Shinobu Toyota and Steve Race where 
you know, there was a rapport being built where it was not just a one-hour interview, thank you very much for your time, but, like, we would email every week. They would introduce me to other people. Yeah, yeah, they would yeah. want me to tell this story. They were story. invested in it. They're, exactly. Um, Do you think that's because they felt jilted by Japan? At the end of the day, their, their, their careers at Sega of America, when they ended in 96 or up, into, up to 96, and it felt like Japan was just, by that point, not giving them the, free, the, the leeway that they'd given them in the early 90s that had led to their success, but they'd started to put the clamps down and telling them how it's going to be. Do you think they wanted to do this book to tell their story and be like, hey, we weren't I, knuckleheads. You know, I definitely we didn't think, sink the company. Yeah. You know, because the first thing that people always ask me when I tell them about it is, oh, yeah, whatever happened to Sega? So I'm sure that a large part of them wanted to tell the story of what happened to Sega and right. say, hey, uh, we were not the reason that you're asking that question. Um, another part is um, to work at Sega and to have fun there and to make them special. Like, it took a certain type of person, someone who really embraced, like, the power of narrative, which is also, you know, kind of like another word for marketing. And I think that those people... Um, are much more likely to want to speak and, talk, and you know tell the story and help shape the story um, and be a part of you know basically understanding the value of why I was writing the story. They were it wasn't like they were reading this and giving me notes, but they wanted a story to be told and they wanted to get it out there. Whereas the Nintendo people were more just like, we'll do our thing, you do yours. Yeah. Um, but at some point that changed, and the turning point was really um, selling the book proposal. You yeah. know, I, I do understand someone's reluctance to speak with you if, if they don't know. Yeah, you're a you, guy off the internet. Yeah, I was a guy off the internet. And, you know, I think I'm charming and I provided nice banter. So even if this book never happened, like, it was 45 minutes of their lives or it was a right. new friend. Like, I don't think it you was You paid much, for coffee, whatever. Yeah, I don't think it was much cost to them. But I can understand these people are busy or they have, you know, a families lot of and, yeah. families and stuff. Um, and so after I sold the book, um, they, you know, I definitely got them to open up more to me. Um, also, a really pivotal person was Tony Harmon, who I thought had a great perspective in Nintendo of America um, between the business side and the development side. Um, you know, a lot of the people in the story, a lot of the executives didn't play video games. Um, right. To them, it was it could have been widgets. It could have been anything. And that, and that is part of what is appealing to me is because this is a universal story that almost just so happens to be about video games. But video games are amazing. So right. it's good to get that perspective, And I like too. Tony Harmon because... He's standing alongside like Miyamoto and these people who yeah. we know, and he's tasked with making his own game. He seemed like the first Westerner who was tasked he, with making a game for Nintendo. He w he was the one who, in that situation I mentioned, where Yamuchi it's in the book, said, and you guys have to read said, the damn book. It's like, awesome. Yeah, one of like one of the defining moments to me um, for Nintendo and sort of the waking up or just sort of luck being on their side was Tony went to Japan um, after writing basically a a paper saying I think that great games can be made outside of Japan and he was challenged by Yamuchi who said I you know I brought you here to basically tell you why you're wrong and I have Miyamoto and all these other legends, legends by my side yeah. and they were so he's they kind of laughed at him yeah they kind of laughed at him um and Tony you know he'd had no proof he, there was no like great European game that you could say see look this is as yeah, good yeah. as Mario um but instead of giving up he cleverly you know said he said uh how much money do we spend on marketing every year? And they basically said a lot. And he said, and how are our commercials? And they said, not very good. And then he said, well, if you give me a few million dollars, if you give me like $2 million. You give me the budget of how many yeah, commercials? Give me the budget of one bad commercial or of one commercial and let me try to make a game. Um, worst case scenario, you end up with one less bad commercial. Best yeah. case scenario, you end up with being proven wrong and having a great game. And he literally went to Europe. Isn't rare in Europe? Yeah, and or he went to Europe. England. Yeah. yeah. And so it's not, you know, just to be clear, it's not like Tony Harmon 
then made a game on his own. He, no. he was basically almost like let me see um, the team, the GM, yeah. yeah, like the the GM who was then the owner's like, all right, you can go hire a free agent. Right. So he looked at the market. He went. He took like a European tour and he found Rare, um, who had made games for Nintendo back in the '80s, but kind of had shied away from the Super Nintendo. And I love um, that story. And and what he saw ended up leading to Donkey Kong Country, which for so many reasons was exactly what Nintendo needed and helped them win the console wars with Sega or at least finally compete with them and, and extended the life cycle of the Super Nintendo. The Donkey Kong Country, which is one of my favorite all-time games, came out incredible. in the fall of 1994. Meanwhile, Sega was releasing the 32X, which was a technological phenomenon, Night, but yeah. a piece of shit. Like, yeah. It didn't, you know, and, and the fact that Sega was focused on hardware and being thrust with this hardware they didn't even like that was given to them from Japan, and Nintendo was, like, just getting started with their great games. And, you know, Rare then made the rest of the Donkey Kong series, Killer Instinct. Um, so that really shows the difference between Sega and Nintendo. But just in terms of getting back to the access, so speaking to Tony was really helpful. And also, just from my own standpoint, I contacted Tony, because um, of all the people at Nintendo, Gail was really the only one that I kept building a relationship with. Right. And she would tell me who to speak with, and, and I would try yeah. and fail. And I contacted Tony because I kept I, one of my favorite games also is Ken Griffey Junior Baseball. Um, yeah. And and he was involved with that. And I was like another. T- she kept saying like, oh, that's a Tony question. And Ken Griffey like, Junior Baseball. And you're like, oh yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, listen, can this Tony guy talk to me? So I emailed Tony, um, and I was like, Tony, um, I haven't gotten a response to any of your, you know, my previous times I've reached out. Yeah. But I'd really like to speak with you. It can be on whatever terms you want, off the record. It could be like, you know, if you need me to come out there, whatever you want. And he wrote back. Um, there has not been a single year since I left Nintendo, which was 1996, either 95 or 96. He said there hasn't been a single year since I left Nintendo where somebody hasn't asked to interview me and talk about my experiences, and I don't see any possible way this can benefit myself or the company that I love. And so, you know, as a writer and said. journalist, yeah, like almost word for word. And, you know, my first thought was like, fuck you. But then my second thought was like, all right, well, he did, he's a pretty cool guy, and it doesn't really help anyone to just write back like, Fuck you. You'll be sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, I was so proud of myself because I wrote, like, a really, really long email. Just sort of what I felt like was the essence or the importance of journalism, of speaking, um, and, and kind of, like, has a thematic thread throughout the story that, you know, Nintendo's reluctance to tell their story really, I think, hurt them in this narrative. And right. it's not like there was a quid pro quo relationship where, oh, Sega guy told me this, so I'm going to write a flattering right. thing about him. But, like, if you're hearing this story from one side, just like even if you're, if you have, a friend who's in a, in a couple relationship and it's not going well, you're hearing it from him. Of course it's going to be color to one side, but it's, if you heard it from both of them... You tried to get that other side. Yeah, and I, and I eventually did yeah. end up getting everybody that was on my wish list except for Minoru Arakawa, um, but that's not like the same thing as saying, like, except for this one guy, because yeah. he was the He's guy. the guy. Between him and Howard Lincoln, um, you know, he was the guy. Um, and, and the other thing you know, that separate Nintendo from Sega is a lot of the Sega stories and the reasons why it's fun to write those chapters and to read about them is because they were such like a fly by the seat of your pants. You come here with an idea. All right, boom, let's do it. Let's try it. Yeah. Um, Nintendo they have nowhere to go. was much more deliberate. Yeah. And so somebody would tell me, oh, we came up with this great idea for like doing this, uh, you know, big promotion in Iowa. We're going to like go to the cornfields. Yeah. And I was like, okay, what happened next? And I'm like, we brought it to Mr. Arakawa, and he said no. <laughs> and I was like, why do you say no? They're like, you have to ask him. I'm like, Well, I, can, I can't ask yes. him, yeah. Um, and, and even after, you know, so I got to know these people, and, and uh, 
specifically in 2013, um, that was when I got to really start to know more the Nintendo side of things and see things from their point of view and, and not, in my mind, have them be a villain in the story, but just people of a different philosophy. Um, and, I, and as well, spending time with them for the documentary, getting to spend a day or some days with them, really enhanced that relationship. And that, you know, I had a great interviews in person with Peter Main and with Howard Lincoln, and I really respected and admired both of them and felt like I could then capture their voice. Um, and both of those guys have a relationship with Arakawa, and both, I know, recommend it to him, like... I think you should, this guy, yeah, yeah, you should speak to him. Um, but it just never happened. And Maybe once he sees the Seth Rogen movie. Yeah, with Evan Go- the, <laughs> Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are going to make a Console Wars narrative movie and they're producers on the documentary that you're yeah. co-directing based on some of these interviews. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Isn't that crazy that you're going to have two movies based on your story? And here's my prediction. I'm telling you right now. Because George and I were talking, because you know we had okay. our, we had our Doc of the Dead at South by, and we kind of know a little bit more about the festival market now. So there's just okay. You've got Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg in your corner. If you guys finish this documentary by the Sundance deadline, you're going to Sundance. You know that, right? I mean, I my fingers are crossed. Like I've told you how much I've struggled in my career. I we take nothing have. for granted. No, I take nothing for yeah, granted. Yeah, but like, come on! Like, you got the two hottest guys well, in Hollywood right now. No, listen. With the neighbors, <laughs> I think it gives us a got good their chance. Movie. The, this is the end. But as I was like telling you yesterday, when we went out with the book proposal, they've got the interview, which is coming out with James Franco. They, they're everything they, they touch turns to gold. They're the they, best, and they have touched your console wars. I know. They have the console that alone wars. was a. The best compliment out So there. the documentary is, I mean, if you, you go, go edit right now. Go I finish know. this up. Cause like this you, is cutting into my editing. This is cutting into your editing. <laughs> like, you got to get this ready for the Sundance premiere. Uh, we're, I, I'm not going to jinx you. Oh, you're trying to get Toronto? You no, really got to edit uh, the deadline. It was last week. We're uh, having a lot of fun working on it. Um, th- I can't wait for you to see it. And to also for you to see what was not in it. Just because all these, like, I mean, the commercials are one thing. They right. always bring back memories. Um but one of the best things about, you know, as I did get to build my relationship with Peter Main and Howard Lincoln and get to tell their more their side of the story, which is definitely more in the second half of the book. Right. But also, I think that serves a nice narrative purpose because you kind of think that they're jerks. To, and then you're yeah. like, wait a minute, they're not jerks. They just do things differently. Right. Um, you know, when I was spending the day with them, I kind of like uh, pushed them like, hey, do you have any old videos? And really? Both, you know, and Peter found like these old VHS tapes um, of the CES conferences from like the early 90s and the first E3 shows and like that stuff's just incredible like it's awesome talking it's basically the equivalent of like Peter Main playing like the Steve Jobs at Apple like making these big presentations and talking about here's what's coming and it's great to see like when what, it's like what this little thing what didn't you're yeah. like oh that game ended up sucking yeah, or that game like, was awesome we have this crazy amazing thing virtual boy it's gonna change the world yeah yeah the virtual boy <laughs> is coming out it's gonna be amazing and like we're sitting here and the E3's going on around us and uh I always feel that way whenever I'm looking at stuff like the, like, like in the Nintendo <laughs> Treehouse. I'm walking around like, is anybody going to care about Mebos in a year? Like, yeah. or is any? I think they will care about Mebos because yeah. they got that weird Pokemon like Skylanders collector market thing going on. But like, um, when is that? When, when, when is the pulse detector ever going to come out? Remember when Nintendo had that little pulse thing that you? No, like, I don't remember. So Nintendo, like, I remember sitting in the E3 presentation for Nintendo a few years ago. And the Wii had this sensor that you put on your finger while you play it, and it has your pulse. <laughs> it detects your pulse. It can tell when you're getting more excited or less excited as you're playing the game. It was really a pulse funny. detector. And then they just dropped that like a bad habit. Like, remember Wii music? 
No. And they had the presentation where they're all playing instruments. It was like embarrassing. And then Wii Music came out and failed. I didn't remember. That. I've only been last year was my first E3, right. but I didn't even know. I mean, I should know about that stuff. I don't but it's stuff like that. I'm yeah. Like, of course, they're gonna have that stuff in the early '90s. Stuff yeah. where it's like, oh, this game is gonna revolutionize everything. Batman no, Returns. I, I love it. Super Nintendo. And then there's also not even just. I mean, that stuff is kind of like vaporware. Yeah. Like, you know, Sega's virtual reality was like gonna be a very big thing. I think it was. Right. On, it was on the cover of Popular Science. Right. But it didn't come out because it caused seizures and caused headaches. For Star Fox Two. Star Fox Two was ninety for five percent finished really and it never came out star fox 2 wow. it was 95 percent completed and they never finished the damn game so I, i'm like so I that's what made this story so great because like not only did it have the here's the why those things you saw happen but it was also those like what could have been moments and those right. like here did you know that this is why this game actually wasn't this is why we didn't do the five yeah. percent like those kinds of this things. is why mario 2 looks like mario 2 yes. right yeah um and you know i really tried to write in a way that there's definitely some people who know the gaming space really well and know like why Mario 2 is actually not Mario really 2. Mario yeah. 2. But then there's people like my brother who we spent, I don't know, three months playing Mario 2 and he had no idea that it was based on Doki Doki Panic. Right. Like, you know, I think that there's a lot of people of our generation who would just appreciate those facts. And I, and I tried to give a smorgasbord and make sure there's that There's tons was, of them. I love the yeah. origin of Donkey Kong. Yeah. I love how Miyamoto created Donkey Kong. I love what Donkey Kong is actually based on. Yeah. It's awesome. And one of my favorite Robin Williams movies. you got to read the book to get it. Um, and then also worth reading the book is just the list of actors that were said no to for Mario. And I mean, Don, like, like obviously, like Hoskins, like we, I love Bob Hoskins. Yeah. I love Roger Rabbit. Don't necessarily love Bob Hoskins and Mario. But um, the number of actors, who, quality Oscar-winning actors who were passed out for Mario are told no to. You're not playing Mario. Uh, who wanted to play Mario, and then the talent who was involved in making the movie, and then the slow erosion to what we ended up getting is such a great chapter. The best part of that chapter, which basically describes the development hell of the, the Mario Super Mario Brothers movie yeah. and why it ended up sucking, is that like I could every decision Nintendo made or the studio made or the directors made, like from my experiences in the film world, I can see I was like I can see that happening. Yeah, I, I can would, see I, that's yeah. a that's a very very stupid reason to do that. But like I've been told that before. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you see that stuff. Dustin Hoffman like, are too old. Let's yeah, just say. Dustin like, Hoffman was too old to play Mario. Bob Hoskins, he's he hot. He was it. in who? Yeah. Dustin Hoffman Dustin wanted Hoffman, to play him. Not, yeah, he wasn't just like in consideration. He like not desperately, but like he very much wanted to play this part. I think that you couldn't go wrong with a, an engaged Dustin Hoffman. I right. Mean, come on. Like, he would have figured out how to do <laughs> yeah. it. You know, and then some of the talent like that was working in big at the time, like the writers of the Richie Rich movie, they yeah. probably wrote a pretty good draft. Yeah, they probably wrote a pretty good kids movie. You know, it was Nintendo. Just you know, I think that not only does that show like um, you know the dangers of what can happen when there's a lot of uh, you know cooks in the kitchen. Is that going to happen on Seth Rogen's The Console Wars? No, those guys are the best. Seth Rogen and Evan. It's not gonna. Is it gonna be called Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg's The Console Wars? Uh, I don't know, but I think they're gonna <laughs> steal from uh, Spike Lee, and they're gonna have it be a Seth and Evan joint. <laughs> oh, they should. Yeah. You know, I just got mailed the 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 Blu-rays of it's so Spike the Spike Lee joint collection. Yeah. There's like two Where did Blu-rays. that start? It, it, like she's got to have it. He called it that. But Spike Lee joint. Like, did he, is there a reason where he came up with this? Right. You'd have to grow up in Crooklyn. Yeah. So um, I just I watched. She's got. Yeah, I watched um, Ray uh, Allen. the Ray Allen movie, He's Got Game. I'd never seen it before, but I kind of like some of the documentary type stuff he's doing yeah. that feels like she's got to have it and, you know, do the right thing. But 
Yeah, they they mailed me uh, the two Blu-ray awesome. Spike Lee joints, and I watch. I think Spike Lee's a, when he's interesting. There's nothing better. Yeah. You know when he does the Hollywood I mean, stuff. In terms I'm of like, defining the early nineties, like his films. Absolutely, she's got to have it as like a must for any student film, like a student of film. Um, and of course, you know his best movie, Do the Right Thing. But um, yeah, or you know, you, uh, Seth and, and Evan joint would be Seth, tight. Yeah. Did you smoke with them? No, I've never smoked in my life, nor I don't think they have either. <laughs> no. Oh, you see, they didn't invite you. Like, hey, listen, we got, uh, we got, we want to <laughs> talk to you about the the console wars. Nah, we just talked about uh, Seth having a power glove. Yeah, and in my in one of the early treatments that I wrote um, for the documentary, I said the final scene should be a shot of Seth naked with just his old power glove on. Dude, he's half naked. He's like naked through most <laughs> of the neighbors. He should go for it. I'd watch that. I Those like. Those guys it. are awesome. I mean, it, and it's great too. I mean, obviously they're celebrities and they're super successful. But they're super cool. But like, and they're super cool. But the fun part for me too is like when I met with Seth and Evan, who I was meeting for the first time. Like, not only did they also grow up with video games, but they're high school friends. So this was, like, their bonding experience. Yeah, like, yeah. it was cool to see them just talk about friends and mention them. So you glad it landed in their hands and not some person was like, oh, I liked it. It's got a good name. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, some, yeah. some, like, Hollywood dick who's like, oh, yeah, it's got a good name. The kids like the video games. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. I like the Xbox. Yeah. This, this chapter with the Xbox the is kids, great. But they, uh, the video games. I like this a lot. Um, sit down. Have a seat. Um, you know. No, they totally got it from, like, the first yeah. second. And, you know. The fact that I'm in, I was or I'm still am like an unknown writer and I had no track right. record and they just saw that there was promise in this and like I mentioned to you earlier tonight, the book is amazing. Those documentaries can be amazing and it has almost nothing to do with me. It's just an amazing story. So these guys... Don't right do now. that. Yeah. No, don't, I'm don't, humble. I'm so don't humble. Don't do that. I was just telling the guys over here, I was just telling Xander at Twin Galaxies, like, he's like, I started reading the book. It's really fucking good. And I said, yeah, it makes me not want to write. Like, your writing is actually really good. It's really the, their narrative well, fiction I think writing that. is really damn. <laughs> but I've good. been humbled recently your, by some. <laughs> oh yeah, your New York Times review. No, but it's not just that. They're like your New it? York Times review. What did your New York Times? No, no, review but say? not just that. Okay, so there was a New York Times review. What which, did it say? Which talked for the first half of this very long article about all the cool things in the book that you and I I love them. love. And then it said, it sounds like it'll make one heck of a movie, but it doesn't make one heck of a book. No, I think the book is really easy to read and really great. But that's fine. But then then later that day... What does he want? That was my first ever bad review, which, I mean, great, it's in the New York Times. For the New York Times. But then later that day, there was another one from the Onion AV Club, which I love, and it said, the headline was, um, great story, told poorly. (laughs) Onion AV? Yeah, I was like... Yeah, that was a parody headline. No. It wasn't even grammatically correct. Well, you know, the, the two people who reviewed it, I mean, both of those are very respectable uh, magazines, newspapers. But interestingly enough, the people who reviewed it were both video game journalists. So it wasn't like... Oh, come on. You think they... So that, that made me feel like a little bit... No, have your book journalists review it. Don't give it to the guy yeah. who's like sitting there going, oh, uh, this first-person shooter isn't as good as that first-person shooter. Like, that guy's even literate. Yeah, no, I was kind of... They gave bu- it to the least literate individual I, do, do you know, in the place. Do you know Stephen Kent? I don't know the, anybody. I sit in my home no, and No, Stephen Kent wrote the history of video games. I do know that guy. Yeah, and Not so personally. he emailed me to congratulate me on the book and said, you know, you've been getting really good reviews. The book's really damn and good. And I said, here's... Yeah, I said, but not these two. And then he said, you know what, Blake? When I wrote my book, people... Um, all the video game journals ganged up against me and they viewed me as an interloper in their like community and I feel like you're going through the same thing. So. What is it with these jackholes? I mean, he, he was so nice, Stephen. He said, like, you know. You're illuminating the things that they love. Yeah. You're illuminating it. That's right. And they turn around and they pull this? Why do they give it to the video game journalists? 
That's yeah. ridiculous. You know what you want to give to the video game journalist? Guess what? A video game. Yeah. This isn't a video game. Maybe when the console wars goes to video game, they should make it the console wars, the video <laughs> game. Well, thank like, you for your kind words about the writing. I think I knocked it out of the park. I felt like I hit a go. groove. There you go. No, I think. Keep it going. Yeah. No, no, no. I really wrote it um, to be super accessible, um, to feel like, you know, no, the book is written to be. There's also some really good writing in there, so stop with that. Okay, but it's, but it's you know. You didn't write something pedestrian. Well, thank you. I mean, it's easy to read. Yes. It's accessible. Yes. No, I love wordplay. I love but the word great play literary good writing. And I, the structure of the drama. Yeah. Because not all of it is told in no, the, the I mean, plotting it's, it's, of it was the, plot, the hardest part and the part that I think Because I did it's told the best out of sequence. Sometimes you talk about Nintendo, then, right. then you shoot back to like the mid century and you're like, oh, this yeah. is how Sega no, there was, and there was, was a born out of all World that. War II. Yeah. Sega was born out of freaking World War II or Korea. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a veteran coming back and being like, okay, I'm going to put arcade games in bars. And that was the birth of Sega. In, in, in the beginning of the, 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 the card company in Nintendo in the yeah. late 1800s, you jump around, but you do it. You well, tell yeah, the story. Thanks. You tell that part when it needed to be told. And it's like, you know, it all goes back to the reason I wrote the book was because I really just wanted to read it. Yeah. You, know? yeah. And, and, you went into and, a bookstore and we're like, oh, what is the video game? Yeah. History and in section? terms of like, that's how I wrote it too. Um, I think the style is a little unusual and also the 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 narrative like you know just the narrative chronology is a little bit unusual but it's oh, it's because that's how i want to be reading books when i read my favorite books are disney wars smartest guys in the room michael lewis books mm -hmm. but i oh i hate how like in those books like they mention seven people on one page and i don't know like is this person coming back right. like should i be investing them right. so i try to do it in an interesting way to highlight like kind of like i'm mentioning five names but i'm describing this one so maybe like this is the guy to follow here right. and also just you know, um, what's it, Barbarians at the Gate, great right. book. Couldn't get through the first 70 pages the first two times I tried because it's, I'm not invested in the story. I don't necessarily want to know the history. But once I was invested in it, I looked back and I was like, wow, that's so fascinating that this is where they came from. So I tried to put that in a point where it actually made narrative sense and wouldn't be dry. Yeah, I just compared it to Breaks of the Game because that's my favorite yeah. narrative fiction or narrative nonfiction is uh, the basketball book Breaks of the Game, which is just like probably the best sports book ever written. A lot of people say that. Um, and and for me, the biggest uh, compliment that I received um, was from the people themselves, just like almost like shaking their heads, saying like, "You nailed it! Like this is exactly what it was like." Mm -hmm. And and it's like because obviously they didn't repeat what they actually said verbatim. Right. You had to put dialogue to me. It's in like around. you know, it's the uh, so the book has been criticized by the New York Times and other people. Oh, I, you mean video game writers? Great. Yes, but and and they've often used the phrase hackney dialogue for whatever reason. But uh, but like to me. It, it's, it all goes back to, like, the what's lesson number one with writing? Show, don't tell. Show, don't so tell. So if I'm going to tell you, like, Sega was a fun place to work, or, like, this guy was really sarcastic, is it better that I say that, or is it better that I you, write something yeah. that sounds like he would say, or that people, it's half remembered what he said? Right. Do that, have him read it, say, like, okay, yeah, that, or maybe I wouldn't. Because you had that. them okay their own dialogue, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I would have said that. Yeah. In... in I'm trying so to think the actual dialogue is the actual dialogue signed off by the people whose mouths it came out. That's my one of. regret. I really wish in the author's note I had said that um, all the scenes and all the dialogue, dialogue was, were like reviewed and approved because it says there that some of it's invented or imagined. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. people thought that I was like, oh, you know, it'd be so cool. It's an estimation of what they would say. Like, it's what they would say if they were in a cool <laughs> member in the movie. You yeah. know, like the thing you want to say in the movie. Yeah, you know, like oh, that's what that's kind of what we put in there. No, and, and there's awkward parts in there. Are people saying things that aren't slick and smooth because right. it was a, a, job. a video game company, right? Yeah, um, I put like 
I put a lot of thought and there was a meticulous way to doing it. It wasn't just like, Tick yo, that would be cool. More like hackneyed reviewers, you hear that? But it's, but honestly, and I'm sure this is something you've gone through since you've been in the public space yeah. much longer than I have, it's been really interesting to see personally how I've responded to that and how my feelings have changed. Like when I saw those two negative views a few weeks you ago. You just want to punch them in the face. I wanted to punch them in the face. I felt like really bad. And then, <laughs> you know. You get over it. You get over it. Fuck and it. like, who cares? That's their opinion. Whatever. Yeah, but it's it's kind of nice. And like, it's still you know, occasionally something will get to me. But it's nice to just actually feel like, you know, sometimes when you're not a kid anymore and you're and not every day is a growing experience. It's just like it's nice to actually realize like, oh yeah, I actually can like change a little bit or right. become like used to things. Um, yeah, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, you've grown callous, is what you're saying. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I did, I've been thinking about it that I grew callous because a lot of people say when they read the book, it, you've changed. It brings bro. back a lot of you know they have a lot, such a strong sense of nostalgia. And I used to really consider myself a very nostalgic person. We're romantics. That's why we're doing what we do. But like, ever, but like these past, ever since I met my fiance, who you met, like, yeah, I, I just, that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just happy that yeah. like, like I used to really pine for the past. I, I there was that great line that I'm gonna butcher from Kicking and Screaming, where it was yeah. like I'm nostalgic for things like as they're happening or yeah something along those lines that's how i always felt that i was like I, I romanticized five seconds ago because like in my mind it was so much better right but i i, I went out of my way not to really do that with the book because i wanted it to be for people of all ages but right. I, it's nice to hear that people find nostalgia because i didn't write it with that nostalgia in mind no, I, wrote I, I think your meeting is halfway which is like i think yeah right that's you like, bring your baggage to it and that is the greatest thing about storytelling is you don't overdo it so the audience has no investment and you don't underdo it so the audience has to do too much work barbarians at the gate you know what yeah. i mean like you meet them halfway you each take your own baggage and investments to the table yeah. and they see something in your art that you that that yeah, you didn't that, even put there that yeah. you, they brought it there and then, then that becomes no, a that's, communication that's, that, really that's where art works and so if they're saying it's nostalgic you've sparked <laughs> that in them because yeah. I, I don't think our job as artists is to just emote i think that's a very selfish thing to do as an artist to be like oh i'm just gonna emote i hope you care no, your job is also to evoke, you know, yeah. and, and and it's that relationship no, it's that an point. artist And that was, for. like, where it really came in handy to write the book in the style I did, where I felt like you were not just in the room, a fly on the wall. You were, like, a fly in these people's brains and watching right. it happen. So I can use, the, you know, the language to um, evoke as much as I want in terms of tone. But, like, essentially what I'm mostly showing you is the is the action and the right. thought. I'm not saying as an author and then this game went on to become this so like <laughs> here's why this commercial was very important because six you know like no it's a personal thing it's like you're in you know you get to watch it happen and have your own personal experience um the book is called the console Wars. i'm just gonna call it that i know it's not called the console wars but your you know, version of the book is called the console wars well the funny thing is that it really <laughs> and I was also like the star wars <laughs> well okay so the star trek the book so early on i wanted to write a book about sega nintendo um, and then it became clear, you know, in that first right. year, it was much more Sega-centric. And, and still today, the narrative for the first half and, like, probably, you know, 60 sure. or 70% of the book is Sega-centric. But when it was all Sega-centric, the book was called Welcome to the Next Level. And yeah. then um, my agent suggested we call it Console Wars, um, and I called it The Console Wars. Yeah. And so, Revenge and, of the like, Jedi. in every draft, he'd be, like, he would say, like, he'd write back to me, like, oh, we, here's what's going on with Console Wars here. What do I think we should do? And I'd be, like, all right, here's the Console Wars. And so, like, I kept, like. Revenge of the Jedi. You had to change the name. Yeah. The Console Wars. And then, like, finally, uh, we had uh, 
you know, it came to a point where it's like, what are we going to send this out as? And the person whose opinion I relied on the most was my brother, who I... Yeah, it's um, just got to be called Console Wars. I'm because saying, he's I'm being facetious. My brother, I know, it, I, yeah. at the time, now the Console Wars sounds funny to me, yeah. but my brother is like, never reads, he's so like oblivious to everything, but I feel like he's just like yeah. John Q. Public, and I was like, Dylan. You're perfect, yeah. Is it Console Wars or the Console Wars? Which one are you going to pick up? He's like, Console Wars. The Console Wars. Console Wars sounds fucking tight. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Console Wars is tight, bro. Yeah, and my agent, he'd said, yeah, it's not the Star Wars. Yeah, it's not the like, Star Wars. I was like, this is different. But That's anyway. why we joke the Star yeah. Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Those kids in there are the Star Wars. You uh, you ever go out and see that movie, The Star Wars? <laughs> you uh, you read that book, The Console Wars? So who wins at the end of The Console Wars? Anybody get killed? I like a good war novel. <laughs> Oh man, the console wars. Well, um, what we should do is do, like with that movie where Jack Black and Mos Def like remake all those movies. Oh yeah, be kind, rewind. Yeah, we should totally do that to the console wars and make a cardboard box like yeah. war movie called the console wars. I am Sega. I will kill you, Nintendo. That'd be awesome. I am Nintendo. There's no defeating us. We are the singularity. Like, dude, we should make the fucking console wars. The yeah. console wars. We should do a web series version of the console wars. I am Nintendo, the singularity. I will defeat you, Sega. So what do you think is Sega's weapon in this, the console wars? The console wars? The Attitude. console wars are They, like, spray paint yeah. each other. It's like graffiti can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like <laughs> those mid-80s, it's like, like those mid-80s rebellion, like, movies, like Mad Maxy type kind of movies. Where, like, <laughs> the rebels are all on, like, rollerblades and yeah. shit like that. Like, Cry for the Roller Boys. Oh, the Remember that crap? Yeah. Yeah, like, like in, that's in what In the it musical is. I wrote, the bad guys are on rollerblades. Yeah, it's like rad. Like, yeah, I love it. Return to Oz, too. I always yeah. love that one. It's like... The rollers. No, yeah. no. <laughs> um, all right, guys. The book is called Console Wars. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in bookstores. Blake Harris, he's the writer. And, of course, we're going to look for this movie, both movies, the documentary from Arizona, uh the documentary and the feature film. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm going to be really disappointed if this is my last time on your podcast. <laughs> So, you live in New York, but you know what? New York Comic Con just went to a full week. Boom. My contract for, with Lion Forge requires me to go to five conventions a year, and I already do like three or four in California, so I have to do New York or Chicago. I love New York. I, I lived there. So well, I'm out we'll here do a year, we'll, well. Do a year, we'll do a whole week in New York of yeah. the console wars. We'll actually film yeah. that. The we, console wars. We should get Seth and Evan to play in it. The con- I am the yeah. console wars. I am the upstart. I am Sony PlayStation 1, born in secrecy. I imagine it's very much like uh, Peter Griffin's The Kid yeah. and I. Yeah, it's like I have inherited from Atari. I am Atari. <laughs> I came before. Yeah. Uh, that'd be awesome. All right, now uh, I'm going to not be able to think about anything besides uh, our <laughs> The Console Wars. <laughs> cardboard series. box. Yes. Console Wars. It's going to be fucking tight. It's like yeah. Laser Cat from, yeah. Star- from SNL. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. I am The Console Wars. All right, guys. It's Laser Cats meets Star Wars. Yeah. Meets the console wars. <laughs> uh, we'll see you guys on the next Geekscape. Peace.